and uh, another wonderful hymn that just reminds us and speaks to us of uh, the goodness of our God. And so this morning, as I was uh, uh, thinking and praying during the course of the last few days, what it was that uh, we should speak about. Um, part of uh, this morning's message was uh, stirred to me by my brother Adrian, one of our elders here, who's been speaking to me and reminding me of sanctification. I'm, I think there's some good reasons why he's been talking about these things, and uh, it's an, always an encouragement for us to be able to think and to talk about them. So the section of scripture which um, you should have read, and uh, slightly... was from 1 Thessalonians, and uh, those verses are exciting because they contain a number of different aspects of the subject that we're looking at uh, during the course of these next few moments together. And I'm conscious that time always goes very quickly on these particular Sundays, so we'll try and uh, keep things going. One of the things that uh, I've noticed, and I'm sure you've all noticed, is the fact that the world in which we live in is getting increasingly dark. It's increasingly uh, dark from a moral perspective. It's increasingly dark from the perspective of just exactly um, who the church of Jesus Christ is. It's even a sense in which there's a darkness that has been allowed to pervade into the churches uh, themselves. And so we realize that uh, there are some things that are not right that are taking place in our world. One of the things we notice, of course, is attitudes are changing Things that used to be wrong, and people accepted that they were wrong, are now considered to be right. And not only are they considered to be right, but they are also promoted. They're applauded. So something that not so long ago was considered to be wrong, generally, is now generally accepted to be uh, correct and to be right and to be something that we can engage in. We're living in dark, difficult and to an extent, a dangerous world. And Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to a group of Christians. It was a big city. Thessalonica had probably 200, 250,000 people living in it at that time. Thessalonica is one of the few uh, New Testament cities which is still a city today, thriving city. I've been there. It's busy. It's a big industrialized city. It's uh, got the, the name has been changed slightly to Thessaloniki, but it's there in Greece but it is one of the original and perhaps uh, the oldest uh, letter that we have in the New Testament. Maybe Galatians was written first, we don't know, but certainly it wasn't uh, very different to um, Thessalonians, Thessalonians 1 and Thessalonians 2. So Thessalonica was not an easy place to live as a Christian. And those that came to faith as the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul preached the message, would have been facing difficulties there was temptation that they would have faced. There was things that were taking place that would have tried their faith, and it was something which wasn't easy. Persecution took place. Uh, persecution of believers was rife at this time. And Paul wrote this letter, and he wrote it for a specific reason. And the reason we're talking about it this morning is not just for George and Tina and Erica's benefit, but for all of ours. But in some respects, I'm talking to you three guys uh, particularly this morning. But Paul wrote this letter to explain how to live the Christian life in a difficult environment, in an environment where people were not encouraged when it came to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and it's the verse 22 that we're looking at particularly. It starts off by saying, abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the grace of, uh, sorry, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. And that's the word that we're looking at, sanctification. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Now, this verse, I think, is absolutely magnificent, isn't it? Because, first of all, it tells us there are certain things that we need to do. It also tells us about the completeness of our sanctification. In fact, it spells it out in great detail. It, the verse talks about our spirit, our soul, and our body. And then it goes on to say this. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Friends, we're not on our own. George, Tina, you've got each other, but you might let each other down from time to time. But the Lord Jesus will never let you down. Erica, the Lord will never let you down. And that's the blessings that we have and that these verses talk to us about. So we're going to talk this morning very quickly about practical sanctification. We're also going to talk about something called positional sanctification. We're going to talk about something called progressive sanctification. And then very, very quickly at the end, perfect, perfect sanctification. Because these verses tell us that something's going to happen to us one day. And we're going to rejoice in that. And we uh, look forward to this. So the verse does, of course, begin with a negative admonition. Uh, we spoke about quite a lot of this last week, if you were able to come along. It says, abstain from every form of evil. And this, of course, ties back to chapter 4 and verse 3 in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul uses the word abstain again. And he says this, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Peter wrote and said, abstain. He didn't say, you know, a little bit's okay. He says, abstain, abstain from evil. Abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. You see, today, society tells us that everything's different to how it used to be. Society tells us that if you try and live the Christian life as perhaps your parents did or your grandparents did, then you're old-fashioned, you're out of touch, you've lost touch with reality. You're no longer able to see what's going on in the world. Everything's changed. Why in the world don't you want to join us? In fact, the scriptures talk about that, doesn't it? And so we discover that very, very clearly, the world is saying that things are different. Society tells us that we should be tolerant and that the balance of life is important. And yes, it's true that as believers we should be tolerant. We don't argue with that. And yes, it's true that we should have and lead and live balanced lives. The scriptures explain that to us very clearly. And the scriptures that we're looking at, the verses that we have here, explain that very clearly. But it doesn't negate the fact that there are some things that as believers we just have to say no to. That's it. We don't have to cloud the issue. We don't have to try and justify it. We don't have to try and reconcile it in any way. There are things that we just have to say no to. We should learn to say no to every form of evil. That's what the scriptures tell us. So what Paul is talking about here is he says, keep away. 
So you see the sign that says, danger, keep away. And what's our natural inclination when we see that sign? Okay, it's to get closer, to find out what it is that's dangerous. You know, don't fall over the cliff. There's a village in North Devon in Somerset, in England, and there's a sign by the side of it. It's a big sign, you can't miss it. And the sign says this, it says, do not follow your sat-nav. Okay, so sat-nav is your satellite, your GPS, your satellite navigation system. Because if you do, people drive off a cliff. Because some reason there's a glitch in the software, and unless it's been corrected in the last 10 years, it meant that people would turn left and there would be those that would just drive over the cliff. Even though the sign says, cliff, danger, stop. Okay, so our natural inclination is to look at the sign and to think to ourselves, I wonder what it is that's dangerous about this, let's try and find out. And then some of us go too far, don't we? And we actually want to partake in what is being told that we need to be careful of. But Paul says, keep away. Keep your distance from every form of evil. Now, that's the opposite to chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says, hold fast to what is good. So now we see the two comparisons don't we keep away from evil and hold fast to what is good so in our sanctification in our life as believers you guys the witness and the testimony you've made you've stood in front of these people and you've declared certain things your allegiance to Jesus now that means you've got to live that life so we keep away from evil but he doesn't leave us alone what did the verse say I'm with you I will do it. And so what we do is we cling to Christ. We hold fast to him because we're not left on our own. You see, friends, and I say this specifically to those who have been baptized this morning, if we let these things into our lives, you know, the deceitful things, some of them seem really good. And yet there's that little doubt in the back of our mind that tells us they're not good for us. We allow bitterness to come in and we start thinking nasty things about other people. How's that going to help us? It won't. It will separate us in our relationship with God. Paul is talking here about sanctification. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body... (laughs) be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks about the God of peace. I don't know where I'd be without the God of peace in my life. The world we live in is not a peaceful world. Our family lives are not peaceful. We so often find that the world is determined to bring anything but peace. And yet when you talk to people, that's all they want. And the gospel is described as the gospel of peace. Isn't that tremendous? And so we've got the answer to all the problems in the world, which is peace in God. This evening we're going to talk about The statement that is so used out of context, which is, God is love. But he is. It's a description of his character. 
And during the course of this week, our township is being plunged into a meeting on, the, on Tuesday, the 25th. Uh, the meeting starts at 7 o'clock, and there's going to be a protest um, that's been organized by the LGBTQ community uh, at 6 o'clock. And uh, um, I've been asked to say if there's anybody who would like to come to that meeting to support the councillors who are going to stand for... Um, saying that these flags shouldn't be put up in our town. Would you please try and come? Because there's only 75 seats available, and the other section of the community are determined to fill every single one so that we're not allowed in. So we're going to try and be there, uh, those of us who, who can come, and I will be there I'll, uh, probably around quarter to six on Tuesday. So if anyone felt able to come and join us, please do that. It's not peaceful, but our God is a God of peace. Now, we could get the impression as we read these scriptures that there would have been some division of some sort in the Thessalonian church. We're not given all the details. Perhaps it had to do with public worship because Paul had to admonish them and he says, do not quench the spirit. And then he goes on and he says, do not despise prophecies. In other words, it may have been that there were some in the church who were careful about what they thought were excesses. And of course, we should be careful about excesses. We want to see balance in our worship. But we can be so careful, we can be so rigid, we can be so mechanical that we quench the Holy Spirit and we resist the work of the Lord. Whenever Paul uses this little phrase, the peace of God, it's often in connection with church unity. Sometimes it's in connection uh, with sanctity, living a holy life. But in Romans 15.33, in Romans 16.20, in 2 Corinthians 13.11, Paul is talking about the unity of the church when he talks about the peace of God. And we are the church. If we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we're part of the body of Christ. And our unity is vital. This is where our strength comes from. And Paul uses the phrase again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. So that's the backdrop to why Paul then goes on to talk about sanctification. This is Paul's prayer that they might be sanctified. That's what we see here in these verses. And this sanctification, and Paul explains it in a very, very practical fashion, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm not an academic. I love being able to see things practically. To be able to see a picture helps me, and I think that's why baptism is such a wonderful thing, because you've seen the demonstration of what Christ appeared in this world to do. He was there when the world was created, and he appeared again at Bethlehem. He was born, and then he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. And so we see that very clearly in baptism. So this is the backdrop that we have. It's practical. And he's telling the Thessalonians how they can go about obeying all of these expectations that he has given to them. And firstly, he urges them to begin by loving their leaders in the church. Now, some of you might say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to be the pastor of a church, to be an elder in a church, to be a leader in a church? And Paul sees 
the problems that are taking place in this new church here in Thessalonica. And so he starts talking about sanctification and he says, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves, verses 12 and verse 13. You see, our sanctification begins by our attitude, and our attitude towards our leaders is one that we discover explains and tells a great deal about what's going on inside our hearts. Again, perhaps you get the impression that there was some sort of division that was taking place. Perhaps there were some people who thought that they were more spiritual than others. It's amazing how that happens in churches, isn't it? I'm more spiritual than you are. (laughs) Look at me. I've got a jacket on. (laughs) I'm more spiritual than you. The jacket means nothing. Okay? But we've got to be so careful of these things. And then he exhorts those who were unruly. Now, again, churches have people who are unruly, the ones that can't be governed, the ones that have a problem. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Verse 14, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Now, these are verses... And statements which are incredibly powerful. And they're life-changing as well. And sadly, these are the problems that begin in churches. And cause difficulties. And then verse 15 talks about the dangers of retaliation. Now that's an interesting one, isn't it? This is all practical sanctification. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. I tell you what, folks, it's easy to be kind to someone who's kind to you. It's easy to return good for good. But it's not easy to return good for evil. And that's what we're called to do. Whenever somebody has that approach toward you, they're unkind, it's not easy. And your response has to be to show good to them. Don't retaliate, he says. Your sanctification depends upon it. Your relationship with God depends upon it. This is not a battle that we are waging with each other. This is the body of Christ. We have Jesus as our example. And Paul wants them positively to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Now, the question this morning is, how in the world do we do that? The picture is a a moth coming out of a chrysalis or a butterfly. It's upside down hope you understand that. Verse 23 says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. So let's look at uh, these several aspects of the subject now as Paul uh, presents it here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First of all, we just have to go over what is, the, what is the meaning of sanctification. Now some of you might be able to say, well, you know, I've got some ideas here. Already I'm beginning to think that I've got them wrong or they're not as full as they should have been. Um, I've thought some things about the pastor that I shouldn't have, maybe. Some of the elders, you know. (laughs) 
And all of a sudden, we're beginning to think to ourselves, what is it that's being spoken about here? Well, contrary to what many people seem to think and are content to believe today, it does not mean a gradual change of your old nature so that your old nature becomes more of a new nature. And I suspect that if we'd asked people to put their hands up, a number of people would have said, well, yeah, that's it. That's what sanctification is. It's a lifelong process that takes place. That's a very simplistic approach to it. There are many aspects that we need to consider. The word sanctify simply means this. It means to be set apart exclusively for God's purposes, for God's use. That's what being sanctified actually means. In John chapter 17, verse 19, Jesus said, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now what does that verse mean? Does the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ require perhaps further refinement? Of course not. Jesus is the perfect Son of God. So what did Jesus, what did our Lord mean when he made this statement? Well, I believe very clearly that what he is saying here is, that, is this. I'm setting myself apart. I have set myself apart to accomplish the work of the Father that my Father has given to me to do. So in the sanctification of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, I've sanctified myself. I'm setting myself apart to do the work that I have been instructed to do. Now, of course, the word sanctification or sanctified is used in a number of places in the scriptures for different things. For example, in Genesis 2 verse 3, God sanctifies a day, the Sabbath day. Exodus 19.10, Israel was sanctified. A whole nation was sanctified. Aaron the high priest was sanctified. The temple was sanctified. The altar is sanctified according to Matthew 23, 17 to 19. In fact, in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, Peter tells us to sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord in our hearts. How can we do that? What does it mean? How can I make Jesus more holy? Oh, take me jacket off here. Not just the water that's unbelievably warm. Must be the hottest tent in in Ontario anyway. <laughs> I'm not complaining. <laughs> how, how can we do this? How can I make Jesus more holy? Well, the straight answer is I can't, nor do I need to. But I can do something. What is it I can do? I can give him the first place in my heart, the best place the place of preeminence. I can give him set apart in my heart and my heart is for his exclusive use. Now that is the picture that we have of sanctification that is coming here. Now as you know, I come from England and, and after all this COVID stuff and everything, we're looking forward to going back for a couple of weeks uh, during our time away. And uh, as I was thinking of uh, trying to get an example here, uh, I could go to England, and if I was rich, I could rent the Royal Albert Hall. Now, I don't know if anybody has ever been in the Royal Albert Hall, but it's a spectacular building. It's big, it's circular, and it seats thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And the artwork is beautiful in it. It's an incredible building. I could rent it if I had enough money. But if I went on Airbnb to try and rent Buckingham Palace for the weekend, I wouldn't be able to do it. Why not? Because Buckingham Palace is set apart. It's reserved for royalty. 
And even though I might think I'm royalty, I'm not. When people marry, they're set apart for the exclusive enjoyment and living of those two people. If either party goes out and violates those vows, it is sin. Now, sanctification simply means to be set apart for God's exclusive use. Why? Because if you've come to faith in the Savior, you belong to him. You're his. You're his. Now, all of us want to belong, don't we? And here's the thing. As believers, those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we belong. All the things in the world have come to an end for us in that sense. Because, you know, we might be orphaned. We might be abandoned. Our parents may have said they didn't want us. And God says, I want you. And God says, you belong to me. And he treasures us. And he loves us. You see, God's goal is to make us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, to be conformed to the image of his Son. We are predestined, we're told in Romans 8, verse 29, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In our sanctification, we're to become more like Jesus. George, Tina, Erica, you're to become more like Jesus in your character. Which brings us to an interesting subject of positional sanctification. Now in the Bible we're taught that sanctification is also a position that we have. Now at this point, if you're not excited, you should be if you're a believer. Because this, this is exciting stuff. In Jesus, we are sanctified. In Jesus, we have been set apart from this world. Chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Now that word holiness is the same word uh, that is uh, sanctification up in verse 3, where God called us not to sanctification, but in sanctification. You see, friends, in Jesus, we're set apart in Jesus, we belong to him. And this is what we call, what theologians would call, positional sanctification. Our position has changed because we're now positioned in Christ. It is the act of the Holy Spirit in which he sets apart every saved person. If you know and love the Lord Jesus, then you are sanctified. Because you've been set apart in him. So the reverse of that is the case. If you don't know the Savior, you're not sanctified. You've not been set apart. It is the act of the Holy Spirit in which he sets apart every saved person. So if you're not saved, you need to come to Christ. And you need to recognize that you're a sinner. And you need to recognize what Christ 
has done for you. So sanctification is the first step in the experience of every believer. It is the fact and the act of belonging to God. Now that brings us back to the subject of what we call progressive sanctification. And here in chapter 5, verse 23, as I said, Paul covers everything in these few verses. Paul is talking about progressive sanctification, and he's talking about more and more becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ and being set apart for God's exclusive use. Now, we all know Ephesians chapter 5. It's those verses that speak about husbands and wives, aren't they? They're the ones that we sometimes skip over rather quickly when we realize that we don't love our wives as we should do. And uh, we need to go back and we need to read them. But of course, these verses explain some other things which are very important to us. And verse 25 of, of Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And then he says this, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now this is progressive sanctification. We also turn to Galatians 2.20, which says much the same thing. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. Let me say that again just to wake you up. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives. Did you get it? But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that is the joy, and that's how we can be joyful, and that's how we can be joyful in terribly difficult circumstances. That's how we can look up when the rest of the world is looking down or looking around. Because Christ lives in me. That's where my strength comes from. That's the only way I can stand up and do this, it's the only way that you and I can go out into the world and proclaim the gospel to people around us because Jesus lives in us. But did you notice uh, the next verse in Ephesians 5? That he might present it to himself, a glorious church. So that leads us on to perfect sanctification. One day, perfection. Now you might be thinking to yourself and you might be looking at me and thinking, oh my word, there's a long way to go. And there is. But it's a promise in Scripture. That one day, we will be sanctified completely. I think one of the reasons we've lost our excitement is we've lost the motivation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. One Thessalonians, uh, the Apostle Paul emphasizes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people in Thessalonica were excited about Jesus because they were expectant. They were looking for him to return. I tell you, the, the older you get, the more excited you become of that prospect. You notice that? Sometimes I talk to the kids and youngsters and they say, well, I hope he doesn't come too, too soon. I've got lots of things I want to experience in life. And I just look at them and say, I assure you, you want the Lord to return. <laughs> you don't want to experience the rest of it. He didn't return in the first century and he's not returned 
yet in the 21st century. But he's going to come again. And living in the light of his coming, living in the future tense, is what brings excitement to the Christian life. To wake up in the morning and even have that cursory glance that goes across your mind, it could be today. And as I read the news and look at my news app, I'm thinking to myself, whoa, got to be ready. What a difference it makes. So sanctification just means that day by day, step by step, moment by moment, I am set apart for God's exclusive use. So there's the question, are you set apart for God's exclusive use? Or have you got absolutely no idea what I'm talking about? Is that what you want? He is the sanctifier. Now, what is the measure of sanctification? God is not content that you and I be out of balance. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That word completely means what it says. Do you you notice, though, sometimes we, we like to change what the words in Scripture mean? Well, completely doesn't really mean complete. New doesn't mean new. What does it mean, completely? And may the whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's being spoken of? You notice the word your body. I've not really thought about that before, perhaps. But your body is involved in your sanctification. Not just your spirit. Not just your soul. But your body as well. Now, we don't make an issue as to whether man and the, and the technical terms that you use here is dichotomous, which means material and spiritual, or whether he's trichotomous, uh, which means spirit, soul, and body. I simply want to take God's word at face value. This is what we see here. This is what God says right here. He says the spirit, the soul, and the body. And Eve can make as much noise as she wants. She won't disturb me. I can shout louder than Eve. Uh, uh, we won't put it to the test. So to help us understand this, we're in a tent, okay? And the children of Israel knew a great deal about tents. They had a tent that they had to carry around in the wilderness. And I want you to think of the tabernacle for a moment. The tent of the children that the children of Israel moved around in the wilderness. And in the tabernacle, you had the outer court. That was the fence, if you like, around it. And then in the middle of it, you had a tent that was divided into two sections. Okay, we're talking about the holy part and the holy of holies. So I want you to try and imagine this in your mind. You see the outer uh, fence, the courtyard, and then you have the, the, the tent in the middle. Now, from the outside, you couldn't see the two parts because the fence was in the way. The only people who knew that those two parts were there were the priests who worked by going in and out of the tent, the holy place, the holy of holies, and another group of people. Who were they? They were the ones who knew their Bibles because they knew how the tabernacle had been constructed. And the Bible says there is a holy place, 
and there is a holy of holies. Now I want us to try and think and to understand what took place when God's glory came into the tabernacle. The holy of holies in our lives is our spirit. This is where God comes to dwell in us. The holy place is the soul. This is my mind, my emotions, and my will. Now, if you're not saved here this morning, if you haven't come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's nobody dwelling in your spirit. Nobody. The Bible says your spirit is dead. You're dead in your transgressions. I think it was George and Tina who mentioned those verses to us. Thank you. Your spirit is dead. But when the unsaved person trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit comes in and gives life. And God's Spirit, we're told in Romans 8 verse 16, and God's Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. It's God's Spirit indwelling our spirit that tells us that we are the children of God. You recall that when Moses dedicated the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, the Holy Spirit of God in glory comes down and he moves into the Holy of Holies. And then that glory moves out from the Holy of Holies into the entire tabernacle. That is entire sanctification. When I was saved, that's exactly what happened to me. And you can relate to this perhaps as well. It began in my spirit. Christ moves in, the Holy Spirit moves in. And then from there into my soul, suddenly my attitude changes. Suddenly the things I think change. My conscience stirs me. Because it's moved from my spirit to my soul and then it moves into my body and I become a blessing to people around us, at least I should do. I want to help people. I want to encourage people for them to know and to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. By the way, the outer court could be taken down and it didn't affect the tent, did it? The tent still stood. Because one of these days, my outer court is going to be taken down if the Lord doesn't return before. I'm going to die. But it won't affect the tent. Do you see the imperative here? It won't affect the holy of holies and the holy place. I'll go home to be with the Lord and that's a promise. Because God wants every part of my whole being to be filled with his spirit and his glory that I am for his exclusive use. My thoughts have to be God's thoughts. My emotions, God's emotions. And what I do is what God wants me to do. His will. Serving the Lord completely begins within 
It starts with the inner person taking time every day for the word of God and for prayer, being sensitive to sin, doing the will of God, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, not quenching the Holy Spirit. Oh, we do that too often, don't we? So that the body, the soul, the spirit are taken up and wholly used. And this involves every area of our lives, our eating, our sleeping, our playing, our spending our money, because we're to be totally set apart. It's a joyful experience to be made one in the Lord Jesus and to have this kind of spiritual integrity. But it's a battle sometimes. There is pain from time to time. And sometimes we have to get down on our faces and we have to cry out to God for help. But we know he always answers. And that's why he says in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. God's commandments are God's enablements. We've looked at the meaning of sanctification, the measure of sanctification, and we close briefly thinking about the means of sanctification. Well, obviously, one of them is prayer. Paul is praying for their sanctification. That's what these verses are. And, of course, God answers prayer. We need to cry out to God for holiness. David did that, didn't he? He said, as the deer pants of the water brooks, my heart pants for you, O God. The Apostle Paul started his Christian life. I don't know if you've noticed this verse in Acts chapter 9. When God looks down on the Apostle Paul and he says this, he says, Behold, he's praying. What a, what a wonderful verse that is. Because Paul has changed. And God, and God says, Behold, he's praying. What a wonderful test of our relationship with God because we're involved in communicating and praying with him. And it's a joy to be able to do that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, Night and day, praying exceedingly. Now there's a statement for you. Have you prayed night and day recently? <laughs> do you know, I have, but I don't say that to brag, because I've discovered that my life has changed so much that when I wake up in the morning, I, I find that I pick up from the night before where I've been praying. And during the night, the Lord often speaks and encourages me. And everything that takes place in my, in my life, I find that, that even the mundane things. Joe and I are trying to have a new kitchen fitted. It's gone fairly well so far, but there was a problem. And my wife was worried about it. I said, sweetheart, we've got to pray about this. We prayed about it, and the guy had no problem in the morning. <laughs> Not just praying, but praying in the daytime, praying in the nighttime, praying exceedingly. The word exceedingly means a river that is just bursting its banks. Abounding out of all bounds, praying exceedingly. Do you pray like that? Does your conversation begin in the morning? with God and it lasts all day and as different things come across your path different people come across your path you're praying consistently prayer is important to the Christian life 
Do you have a deep desire in your heart to enjoy and to worship God? Or are you satisfied with just reading a few words from a devotion that the church gave you at the beginning of the year? And you think, well, it must be the right thing because that's what the church has given me and I've done it and everything's okay. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. If that's what you think it is, you are missing so much. It's not just a quick few thoughts in the morning. Pack the kids off. Jesus loves you. Do you actually take time to be holy? Do you actually take time to learn more about God? We sing the hymn, don't we? Take time to be holy. Da, 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 da. But do you mean it? Now the means of sanctification are the word of God, prayer, worship, fellowshipping with God's people, and the experiences of life. The Holy Spirit of God uses the word, sanctify them through my truth, our Lord said. My word is truth, John 17, 17. Paul uses prayer here as he prays for their sanctification. He uses other Christians, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together because the day is approaching. Let me say that again. Forsake not the assembling together for the day is approaching. And what's all this about? People say to me, oh, I listen online. Well, that's great. That's all you do is listen online. But how do you assemble with people? How do you reach into the relationship which we are to have with other people? How do we learn? How do our children learn? How do we enable ourselves to understand what, that this is a, a two-way thing, that we share the gospel with other people? They encourage us. And God's word is very, very clear on this. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together because the day is approaching. That means we assemble together. It means we know each other. It means we greet each other. It means we encourage each other. It means we show love to each other, even the ones that are not very lovely. The ones that we have a problem with. Finally, what are the marks of sanctification? How can a person know whether or not he or she is truly living a sanctified life? Let me make it very clear that sanctification is very practical. Paul is not exhorting us to go up on a mountaintop someplace dressed in a white robe and hang around waiting for the Lord to return. Some cults do that. But we're not told to do that. We're told to live practically in the world. Not to be contaminated by the world but to live sanctified lives in the world. If sanctification doesn't lead us to practical ministries of life, then it's a counterfeit sanctification. It's not real. And I close with a quote from D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said this. He said, Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. I like that. Because what he says is, take your Bible, turn it into shoe leather, and get out there and walk and work and serve the Lord. So when you pick your Bible up next time, and if it's got a leather covering to it, imagine the shoe leather on your feet and live out the Christian.